Hello and welcome back to another Sunday special edition podcast of The Josh Lozano Show. I have with me via Zoom call a very special guest and good friend, Linus Wynn. Hello, Linus. Hey, how are you doing? Linus Wynn has more than 15 years of bivocational teaching and ministry experience. He currently serves as senior pastor of Westside Fellowship Church in Cypress, Texas, and he's also the founder and director of Of The Way Ministries. He's taught in secondary schools and colleges in the humanities, biblical studies, rhetoric, and communications. He has his BA from the University of Houston, his BS in biblical studies and Christian ministry from College of Biblical Studies, and his Master of Divinity from Grace School of Theology. He has more than 10 years of experience in curriculum development and writing in the humanities, theology, history, philosophy of religion, and missions. And he graduated from all programs with high honors. He has advanced training and endorsements from the Circa Institute of Classical Composition and Instruction. And this last year, he received one of the highest alumni honors from his alma mater by being inducted into the Epsilon Delta Chi Society for proven Christian character, leadership, ministry involvement, and contributions to the Christian faith in Christian ministry and education. The Lord has graciously provided him opportunities to contribute and author various publications addressing issues related to the gospel, theology, church ministry, discipleship, spiritual formation, disciplines, leadership, apologetics, and many other subjects. Linus, it is so good to have you on today's episode. So first of all, thank you so much for agreeing to come on with me. Hey, no, thanks, Josh. I mean, I think it's um, it's interesting how over the years, you know, I mean, we had more in common regarding life and ministry than we realized. And so I think that now having our ministries cross paths, I think it's just a wonderful thing. And so, uh, but thanks for being mindful of me and thankful, thankful for being mindful of um, our church and our people and being able to do this. I think that what you're doing is a great thing. Honestly, I think that having solid biblical content in a form of discourse and interaction is really healthy. Um, and I think that what you're doing is a great thing. So thanks for allowing me to be a part of it. Yeah, hey, no, it, the pleasure's all mine, really. For those who don't know who you are, Linus, uh, would you be willing to briefly share your story of grace, how God saved you, and uh, how that's impacted your life? I don't know. I, I grew up in a really um, moral home. I was, my parents were not believers, but they believed in a lot of like Buddhist teachings at that time. And so being a good person was kind of a really key thing in, my, in our home. Um, but with that, you know, like, like growing up to be any kind of uh, good son, I tried to get good grades. I was you know, I was top rank at my school. I got scholarships, got free rides to college. Um, and so I did really well academically. Um, and supposedly I was just, you know, trying to be a good kid, right? A good person. But behind all of that, I was actually um, living a life of, of drugs and alcohol um, and, and kind of like the party scene. And, and I did that for many years through high school, uh, going out to college the same way. Um, and then after getting off to college, getting my own freedoms and and kind of running a little bit wild in, in that area of my life, um, I found myself dropping out of school, quitting my job, and I was actually uh, selling drugs for quite a few years through college. And one night, I actually sold drugs to a friend of mine, um, and it was it was laced with other chemicals and Drano, which I didn't know of. And so when he took it, he overdosed. If you're not familiar with the area in which we live, uh, there's a huge kind of a club party strip area where a lot of bars are and stuff. And that's where I used to live. And so during my friend's overdose, he picked me up and he's this, you know, six foot, six foot plus football player, defensive line. And I'm like five, eight on a good day, right? Five, nine on a good hair day. Um, and so he picks me up, he throws me into the street you know? um, and I hit the, and I hit the pavement and all I heard was cars just screeching around me, just, just zooming by and trying to avoid hitting me uh, being in the road. And I, I remember really clearly, you know, just asking myself, how did my life get to this point? Um, after that, cops were involved, hospitalizations, monitoring, and all these kind of things happened. Um, but unbeknownst to me, my parents had become believers about two years before this. And my wife now, she actually became a believer just months before this evening happened, right? And so they were just praying for me um, during this whole time. And my parents pulled the, the, the family guilt trip card, right? The just spend a weekend with us, you know, we're, we're family, let's go hang out kind of thing. And I found out that they were churchgoers at that time. And I kind of thought to myself, literally, oh goodness, you know, they got them too, kind of a kind of mindset, you know, but I went ahead and went along with them and 
went to a church service one, one morning, and uh, there's this one message. The pastor said, anyone we lead away from Christ, their blood is on your hands. And at that moment, I was crushed, man. I, I fell down at the altar, and I was at the altar crying and praying. And I didn't know what the answer would have been, but I just know that I'm in, a, in the wrong before Almighty God. And my dad came over me. He prayed over me. And at that moment, I surrendered myself, and I believed in Christ as my Savior. I got up from the house, went back to my parents' house. I pulled up my black book um, of all the phone numbers of, like, the dealers and users and all the people in the life I had. And I called every single number in that black book. And I told them to come over to the house immediately because something has happened to me and they won't believe it. Next thing you know, the house was filled with like 30, 50 plus people who, who were drug dealers and users. And they all came in and I shared my testimony with them. I shared the gospel with them. And one at a time, they kind of just got up and left and got up and left, you know. And But with that, I believe one of the key verses I've always hinged on was that by God's grace, I am who I am. And it's not I who labor, but Christ who labors in me. So I work and I serve hard by the, I don't know, the enablement of Christ and the Holy Spirit and his grace that enables me to do this. But I'm under the mindset and the conviction that um, his grace cannot be in vain. And so from that moment on, it's, um, it's never looking back, right? It's not turning back. And so, yeah, that, that's, that's how I am here now today. And, uh, you know, telling people that I either have been in Christian education or passionate church or uh, doing anything like this is completely out of left field. I mean, sometimes I sit back and I don't really believe how this could happen, you know? Oh, yeah, believe me, I know. <laughs> what an amazing testimony. Thank you so much for sharing that. So with that, now God has transformed you from the inside out. He's made you a new creation. You're beginning to share your testimony and your story of grace with other people. You're beginning to sort of, in a way, preach to people that you never in a million years would have thought to preach to. Now you're a pastor this many years later. Give us a little bit of a picture as to how you became a pastor. Yeah, well, when I first became a believer, I didn't... um really envisioned myself as staying at the pulpit, leading a church, or any kind of form of ministry leadership, if you want to use that, that kind of terminology, you know? I, I never really thought myself that way. I wasn't like, from day one, you know, like, I'm going to be a preacher, you know, kind of thing. Um, I, just, I just loved the Bible, and going to college, you know, after becoming a believer, going back to college, and, and I just didn't see a lot of Christian activity and when I did see Christian activity, it kind of just fell into this, this, this kind of a, a strange category. And I think we're going to talk about this more, but the strange category of like, um, you know, it's, it's, it's like a poster image and everyone's like having this, this kind of a event picture. And Christianity was just this huge event, right? Um, it was, but there, other than that, there wasn't really Christian activity in the sense of like the fellowship, the discipleship, the prayers, the, the everyday just little aspects of life wasn't there. And, um, and so I, I longed for that as, as, as a new believer. And I wanted that, but I didn't want to be the one to start anything, right? Uh, but a friend of mine, he just came up and he told me one day, hey, I, I have some girlfriend problems. I need your help with it. And, um, and, I, and, I, and I literally said to myself, well, hey, he didn't have girlfriend problems. He's got Jesus problems. This is a great chance for me to, to sit down and talk to him about the faith, you know. And um, we sat down and we talked about things. And then he brought the question. He says, you know, can we just have a Bible study? And so I asked him, I was like, do you want just one-on-one or maybe two people and us kind of thing? And he said, well, maybe a good, like, two or three guys. So I made just a couple of phone calls. And at that point, that was, like, that was like on like a Monday, right? And so like the next following couple of days, so be like, it was like 15 or 20 people showed up. And that was, our, that was our first study. And then after that, about two days later, another 10 people in addition showed up to that. So after the first week, there was like 30, 40 people. And we met inside the public library of the college, right? Um, and after, so the next couple of days, it just kind of just snowballed and just kept going and going and going. And next thing you know, there was, we had a large group of people who were studying. We committed to one another. Um, we, we committed to the fact of, in between our classes, we'd just go to the library and just read our Bibles and see who God would bring to us. And it became like this little community um, of, of people in this college. And then after that, uh, a couple of years later, it was, it was amazing because it was the first communion service that the, that the school had ever had. Um, praise, you know, praise and worship teams from churches came out and did these things. And so we were, like, we were a family. And even to this day, our college group, we're still friends, right? After that, there was a lot of just mentoring that happened. I felt extremely underprepared for that. 
it was, it was kind of one of those things where, you know, I, I was bio pre-med earlier on. And one of the things that terrified me most was like the lives of people being in my hands, right? Um, and so I was thinking to myself, man, if that's true, imagine like now people's eternities rest on the things that I say, right? And so I, I felt so underprepared. Um, and so that's when I went to Bible college and I met my mentors there and they encouraged me to move on to my other studies. And I wanted to go get my higher education, but I didn't, I couldn't afford it. Um, but God providentially just moved people and moved things around to where I was able to not only afford my Bible college, but then got my seminary paid for and had everything covered. Right. Um, and next thing you know, I mean, looking back, I guess it's one of those things where, uh, when people, uh, when people are brought to you, when God thrusts souls into your, into your midst and all of a sudden you got to care for them as a shepherd. And, um, and so from that point on, it was just one of those things where it's like, I think this is what God has called me to do. And I would say over the years, that's the only category of, of life and work and vocation that gives me life. You know what I mean? It's, it's just so exciting. Um, it doesn't matter how hard it gets, but I love every second of it. I love the fellowship of, of, of the believers, the fellowship in the community of, of God's people, um, the witnessing of the gospel, the hope that it can bring, the, the challenge that it, that it has, the humility that it causes. Just, just, just the aspect of life and life abundance and being able to be in, in, in a position or at least in a, in a place where that dialogue can happen, that message can happen, but that moment can happen. And it doesn't depend on me to make it happen. And, and for me, it's just life-giving. So I think more of anything, God moved me to that position, orchestrated everything all the way to the point where I was actually considering many, many years back a vocation change just because of just life and finances and stuff like that. And my mentor sat me down and he said to me, you know, Linus, do you believe God called you to this? And I was like, yeah, I do. I, I, I love pastoral ministry. And he looked me <laughs> square in the eyes and he said, you have no right to consider any other vocation. And I was like, all right, that's it. And so from then on, I, I never looked for another vocation of sorts that uh, took me away from any form of um, shepherding or, or vocational aspects somehow related to the Bible and the gospel and discipleship. And so I, know, I bet that now with the COVID-19 thing going on and with not being able to meet together as a church, you're pastoring this church, having a hard time being able to kind of bring them together under the umbrella of the gospel physically. How's it going with the church? How's it going with your family and your prayer life and outreach and evangelism? What does all that look like to you in the era of the coronavirus? You know, it's interesting because, you know, I guess you can always look at it in two different ways, right? You can always look at it as this is a negative circumstance that has come and outside of God's hands and therefore God has to respond somehow. Or this is a part of his goodness, right? I mean, we have, we have, we have this interesting mindset that, you know, these bad things happen, but these uh, perceivably bad things happen or these negative experiences happen and God just comes in and just writes those wrongs and, and, and he just kind of uh, comes in and fixes things. But in Genesis 50, I mean, we talked about Genesis 50, where the life of Joseph and everything that has happened in the life of Joseph, God intended it for good. Um, and so the, the good included all of those things that happened in his life, right? And so with that, I mean, I think that what happens now is that we, we try to, at least in our home and in our church and just in general, I try to help people reverse the language of just this um, kind of like victimized way of thinking about it. But the reversal, I talk about the language of contentment. So in our homes, we don't use language like, man, if this didn't come about, we could be doing this. Or, you know, or if this happened, and therefore we have to stop doing this, or I can't wait till this is over, because then we can, and you fill in the blanks, you know. Uh, we don't use that language. This is a time where God has brought to us, and, um, and basically, when the first day happened, we went to our church, our leadership and I, we sat down, and we said, now it's time for you to do what you've been trained to do for the past 13 years. And um, that means being creative in the homes to keep your kids happy and, and fun and, and enjoying themselves supporting each other, husband and wife, you know, going above and beyond, spiritually leading your homes, worshiping in your homes, singing in your homes, bringing messages into your homes, um, and everyone being involved in that. And so literally the church, now it's interesting because our church isn't very large. Um, we don't have a lot of uh, the, the resources that maybe some of the larger churches have. And so our operations are actually really simple. And so when this occurred, it really didn't shock us too much. It, we, we missed the physical proximity and the, and the beauty of that for sure. 
Um, and we long for the day that we can do that. But when it comes to discipleship, the model of discipleship and the patterns that we established and the training, it didn't stop there, but it actually thrusted our people to jump into it even more than they were before. And the church, you know, I think with any church, you can try to figure it out for them, right? And, 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 there's, and there's no knock against any other church, but we chose not to do the streaming format of things, um, only because of the safety reasons also, but at the same time, we didn't feel like it was our responsibility as a church to try to recreate a worship experience for them that they would have had if they were at the building. We actually felt like it was time for them to be able to be equipped to go into their homes, and our job then was to support their homes. And that made the responsibilities much different for the church. Rather than trying to stream and broadcast and do all these things, we began to get together and we prayed. And now what happens is everybody in the church, the main, you know, the, by conflict, the larger inner circle we have, they all started stepping in. So they all started um, recording devotionals, recording prayers, recording scripture reading, uh, music. And we, just, and we just post these non-professional footage of just us in our homes and with our families. And they're pouring into each other every single day. We make sure we have some kind of instructional content for them every single day, whether it's a, an encouragement, a scripture, a prayer, um, or sometimes just kind of like, this is how we handled service this Sunday in our homes. Now, we, we just continued that model and the people took it on and they are the ones doing it. Us as a leadership, then we get to take a step back and then get into it in a very different way. We continue to bring messages and, and record for them. And even on Sundays, you know, we do the Zoom account. We do the, the little Zoom meetup as well. You know, rather than having a, a passive um, spectator interaction with what we do, we simply said, let's just scale down the production level and just get together on a 25% buffering time of, uh, of internet uh, tools. And, but at least let's just see each other face to face and be able to do this kind of thing. And we just still take turns. We, we have the scripture reading, we have a prayer, then we have a message, and we just do it that way instead. Um, and so it really hasn't disrupted our pattern of discipleship, which I do think though, it has, it has caused us to face certain things, I think as a nation, and as a world, really, it helps us think we've neglected for so many years. But at the same time, you, you, I mean, you know how uncomfortable it is to try to lead worship in your own home, right? For you to be the preacher in your house, for you to be the one that prays, to lead music, it's uncomfortable. But going through that discomfort is so healthy for you, though. You get to sit there in front of your wife and your kids and your grandparents, and you get to sit there and try to bring a message to them from the, from the Word of God. Um, you sit there and you pray over people. Um, in, your, in your families, and then all of a sudden you and your children are praying for the elderly uh, members of your congregation or the church worldwide or, your, or your, um, you know, the politicians and the judges. I mean, you get to pray this way, but in the context of your own home, when in, in all actuality, it's so much easier in the local church context, right? In a larger building, in the context of 50, 60, 100 people, whatever, thousands of people, it's easier to be churchy than, you know, in those buildings than it is at home. And so what I think is that, I mean, so, every, so everyone within the church now gets a taste of what it feels like um, to be a contributing member of a thriving church, no matter what happens around them. Yeah. And one thing that you were talking about with regard to preaching to your families and, you know, just kind of the men taking headship on the front lines of ministry in their own homes as the preachers of the home. I think one of the reasons why it makes men like me uncomfortable at times is because they know the real you. They know the real me. And so it's different when, you know, I, I, I've pastored several churches and I've preached a lot over the years and nobody really outside of my house really knew me well. So I could preach with passion and with fire and, you know, get excited and talk about holiness, you know, as though I was this holier than thou person or something. But then it's very different when you're inside of your house and you're behind enemy lines, as it were. They know all your secrets. So I think that might be part of that. But it's still, like you said, I love how you said it's, a, it's the, this grace of God. I think that's how you said it, this grace of God. Because it's not a punishment for the church. It's an opportunity for the church to really be pressed in the area of discipleship and not to be pressed to the point of destruction, but to be pressed to the point of producing wine from the fruit. So that's really exciting 
to hear you talk about your church and your family and, and how you're experiencing God's grace in that way and a practical discipleship perspective. I don't know, for us men to be accountable in our homes, like you said, right? Like now that what we say, we're accountable for how we are and what better way to grow into that than in the, hopefully, prayerfully, the safetyness of your home. And then also we're so used to the the programmed driven kind of way of doing church where you kind of just show up and consume. Whereas in the comfort of your own homes, it's almost like it's, it's so hard to make the comfort of your own homes, the holy place, right? So being able to make your living room, your dining room, the gatherings in your pajamas, a holy moment, it, it changes. I mean, it changes the dynamic of your home tremendously. One thing that's enhanced in my family uh, with regard to discipleship and um, pursuing the grace of God in my family. I have a one-year-old and a three-year-old, and my wife and I have challenging moments, as does everybody, uh, with raising children and that sort of thing. But um, right now, what we're doing is we take uh, on weekdays, especially, we will have reading times uh, while they're all eating. We take a moment and we just read a chapter out of the Book of John or whatever it is, but right now we're in the book of John. So we've been reading through that, and I think we're a little more than halfway through at this point. And it's been really cool because now I've noticed the more we do things like that, they begin to expect things like that. And so it's not like, you know, some houses, the kids come home and they expect to play video games uh, or, you know, the husband and the wife expect to binge watch Netflix for three hours or what, whatever it might be. But it's really cool because I think right now the church is beginning to kind of get into this grace mode, piggybacking on what you were saying, where now they're beginning to experience little tastes of grace and not just like, it's not theoretical anymore. Now it's practical. Now it's real life. We're living God's grace in the moment. That's really exciting to see the church live in those days. So switching gears now, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about our topic at hand, biblical discipleship in a postmodern world. Would you say that discipleship and ministry in general has changed since you started? Yeah, I think, um, you know, again, I've, I was saved in 2001. So I'm still, I would say, still very young in the sense of like this ministry experience, you know, and, you know, this topic of biblical discipleship in a postmodern world. Um, you know, there are so many experts on, on these kind of subjects, you know, so I'm actually really humbled that this subject came up and I'm a part of it because, I mean, just in, just in the past 18 years of the faith and uh, 15 so years of the ministry and, and all those other things, I think it changed quite a bit, but yet it has like the same common thread over the years. I mean, you know, the, the ministry in the face of ministry, the, the image of ministry, it's like the changing fashion trends, right? It happens, it changes so much from one, from one weekend to the next, from one conference to the next. You, know, you have these things that they're always kind of up and coming. The, from one weekend to the next for churches, I mean, the packaging, it, it's always changing. It's always catering. And um, part of my degree before coming to faith, I was a business marketer, right? And so I was in business marketing and I, and we understood what it meant to kind of sell ice to an Eskimo, you know, trying to make people feel that they want some things and being, being in that kind of dialogue. But um, I feel like, we package it in such different ways um, very, very fast. And it became like this uh, Tom and Jerry type of game. You can never really keep up with it. Honestly, within the past 18 years, the, the different things that have happened, it just makes my head spin, you know? It makes my head spin. Um, and then it makes me very fearful, though, because I'm thinking to myself, how, how can the church be sustained? How can, how can the church be, uh, how, how can the models be transferable? How can you pass on how to do church and how to disciple with it changing so much. And then we're buying every single new package and repackaging of it every single time. And then after that, individuals don't know how to do it anymore. And you have to sell this package of teams having to lead it a certain way. That means you're looking for a very specific niche with very specific function. And I think that's the reason why church ministry has changed so much. And so I think that the, the, the packaging for discipleship, church growth, ministry, all these things have changed so much. But the, the underlying content that's found underneath is still the same, I think, um, is that we have a people who are still trying to figure out how to reach their generation to be as biblical as possible, but yet contextualize it as well as they can, right? 
And I think that's the struggle that that's the content inside these these boxes, even though the packaging looks a little bit different. Um, and every, in every generation, I still find that the struggles are still the same, and and we fall into these traps, man. We fall into a lot of trends and traps because of this. But it has changed quite a bit, um, though there are some underlying similarities. And I think the topic of the postmodern mindset gives us insight into into what that could look like, what that means. So you would say then that we are living in a postmodern culture. Yeah, I would I would agree that we live in a postmodern culture, but then at the same time we have this the sprinkles on the ice cream of sorts, the topping of what it means to be in a post-Christian world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you have you have this idea of the postmodernity um, and what that means and the shift of that. And then on top of this now, we don't go into a land that Christianity is foreign to the, the language in the ears, but now has become a place of commonality, right? So it's it's commonplace language now. Um, and so what happens then is that now the gospel or the message of the faith is not as foreign as it once was in, in a postmodern culture, but now we're in a postmodern uh, thread, a postmodern field. But at the same time, our intellect and our minds have been so accustomed to this language of the faith that now becomes equally disregarded as any other option out there. You alluded to the church and probably the culture even being somewhat overly familiar with Christianity and Christian lingo and all these sorts of different things. It's kind of like you put a, a frog into water and you turn up the temperature slowly. And after a while, the, I mean, the frog never really feels itself boiling. It just kind of gets acclimated to the water over time. Do you think that's kind of what's been going on within the church and even outside of the church? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, you know, it's, 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 it's interesting, right? When you have at some point, the gospel being such a contrary message to everyone's experience in that moment of life and context, that it was clearly seen as something that would have turned their life upside down for the better. But now in a postmodern era, with this overfamiliarity of this language, and it's not so much that the gospel is not effective, it's just that how we approach the gospel has, you know, we've created our own type of um, God, our own type of religion, And then that isn't working for us either as any other man-made system that we have. But we've equated it to the gospel. Um, And so, you know, when you do that, then all of a sudden you end up at the end of the day with this falsified view of Christianity with underlying message of me first. And it just becomes this, uh, you know, and over time, we just get used to that language. Um, We get used to uh, church, faith, prayer. Um, And just seems like now it's just a slightly better option amongst other things, maybe, um, but it's, as an image, it's no better than maybe a better view of me, which is just a kind of an exalted view of myself and how I worship. Um, and because of that, we've created a form or a flavor of Christianity that cannot hold life because life can only be held by the true almighty God himself, biblically revealed, right? Um, so yeah, I think we've gotten very accustomed to this which is why I think what you're doing is great because, you know, when we talk about media, when we talk about the amount of information that's out there, we're so accustomed to so much information, but to be able to discern and weed through the information that's worth holding on to all that you have, that's very lacking. And so the hope is that, you know, as I started kind of blogging or any kind of video content or even writing over the years, I, before I started, I always stopped myself from doing it because I thought to myself, wait a minute, you know, like there's so many grains in the sand. It's like me now going, oh, look, here's my little contribution. Here's my little grain of sand out there. But I sat back and I prayed through it and I thought about it. And, and I think that the whole vast beauty of the ocean includes all of the sand and everything in it, which means that, yes, there may be a lot of grains of sand out there, but good quality crystals are still good quality crystals. And it gives to the beauty of the whole thing. So I'm not here to try to be an individual trying to be a part of the Christian movement. I am with my family and God is the one who's creating the growth. And for people to see the totality of the beauty of that message and it's such a unique way to this world, God has called me to it as may have called you and um, our other brothers and sisters, right? And so I hope that's an encouragement to somebody out there. So how would you define or even describe postmodernism as we're referring to it today? I would say if we were to just take a big brush stroke through history, in ancient cultures, you have this view of God that is extremely exalted, 
a high view of God, a, a, a you know, submissive view of man underneath this almighty God. And then as you move your way through to like the Middle Ages, Dark Ages, all the way to the Renaissance and all the way into modernity, you have, you have this interesting progression where God is exalted, man is low. There is this realm in the heavenlies that exists, almighty God, and then us on this earth, right? And, and there was a, a huge, you know, in a sense, a big difference between the two. And then as you move along, then there begins a question, a question about God. It, there, there, there's not a, a, a displacement of God, yet, but a question about God's goodness, God's nature, and how God plays into things. And then you move into another little shift of the, of the era um, that then says, well, wait a minute. Can God really resolve the issues with the problems of this world? I mean, Machiavelli asked the same question when it came to politics, when it came to uh, the justice system. Can the views of God be used in order to help rectify and correct the things that we experience in life? He concluded no. And so what happens is you have this exalted God at one point, a questioning of God at one point. The questioning of God creates an overoccupation with the lower realm. Then now you look at the lower realm with such great magnitude that God could not resolve. Therefore, man has to be the, the, the solution to this. Um, therefore, we have to turn ourselves to ourselves to try to find the solution to the things that God cannot face and God cannot rectify. Um, and that was basically the, the foundations for what modern ideas are and, and what it means to be in modernity, right? Um, it's nothing new for those who are biblicists. We understand that the beginning was God created, you know, God, man, and creation. Um, at the fall, it reversed it, man, creation, God. Um, and so we see that it's, it's a natural result of what we have seen as the fall of, of you know, found in scripture, the fall of man, the sinfulness of man. But as it plays out, what's interesting is that once you remove God from who he is, then you are only left with this self-made solution. And then you're preoccupied with only this life. So if you just watch artwork, for example, old artwork always had, um, you know, God in the heavens and man interacting down here. Then all of a sudden there was like a shift where the, the, you know, the horizons kind of met a little bit more Then you have a little bit of angelic beings still with the aura, but they're walking around. But then all of a sudden that was gone. And then everything became absolutely symmetrical in this world. Proportion, life, and things became the, 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 the center of it. So much so that even in the old paintings of like court systems, right? You have like the judges and you have the, you know, deliberations occurring. And way in the top, you have like the clouds where the angels would possibly sit. But the people are the ones trying to resolve the issue. So you have that picture. And I think that's a great definition of what postmodernism would actually tell you is that there are a thousand stories. They're all your stories. They're all equally true. And they can only be yours. And that includes all of life events, all of life's experiences, and even all of life's solutions. Because why God cannot be the one that actually has the ultimate answer. So have you seen that same mentality of exalting creation, diminishing who God is and what he's done and the nature of God himself, that sort of switch? Have you seen that impacting the church over a period of time? I, th I think a way to look at it is try, you know, try and get a pulse on what's happening around you. And then you can still feel that pulse coming into the church, okay? So it's, it's, it's like the, the zeitgeist of our times, right? The moods, the behaviors, the feeling of how things are. And, you, and what happens is you have, you, have, you have us as people being torn between that which is imminent, that which is right here and immediate, and then the transcendent. And there's like this gap, right? Um, and there, there, there seems to be, if anything, something beyond here. And if there were, it wouldn't be able to break through to interact here. And everything here is what I am focused on, but there's no way for me to get out of it, right? And so if you have that language, you begin to see a little bit of how church is beginning to operate, okay? Um, and then on the other sides of it, you have this pool, this tug-of-war game of that which is uh, beautiful and alluring, or the, you know, that, that which can enchant a person, and then the sense of disenchantment, which means that nothing is, is, is quite as beautiful as it's always made out to be. Um, and then you have this, this then mix, right? Life is great, but then not, not, not really. Um, things could be great, but then these things are just horrible. Um, and you have that, that pull. And so all of a sudden you begin to see then church resources, repackaging of things happening over and over again. A couple of things that come to mind, if, if you really think about it, are like um, our church is being more event-driven, more experience-driven, more program-driven. Uh, we're cause-driven people, uh, social-political platforms. The, the pulpit is like a comedy stage. 
Um, it's, it's a place for personalities to kind of exude themselves. And then from there, you get to pick a personality, you get to pick a channel you want to watch and tune in for as long as you want to. And if it's your liking and it has your program characteristics, then you binge watch it, right? But the pulpit is no longer the place where the word of God is inflamed there in the, at, at the altars of God. So much so that the language of pulpit and preaching is, is taken out of, from a lot of churches today. Uh, we no longer preach, but there's a lot of people who just want a conversation. Sanctuaries are no longer called sanctuaries, they're called auditoriums. I mean, you know, I could be nitpicking here, but for me, all these things are not the issue. They're all kind of the fruit that lets us know what the pulse and the temperature is like. We're social clubs kind of catering to people's preferences and likes. And this has become the church game, right? This has become what ministry looks like today is can you one up one, you know, from one, one day to the next, you know, I had conversations where Easter event was huge. The, the, the you know, and, um, and it was a friend lamenting to me about this is the Easter event was huge, high production. They spent so much time and so many resources going into it. The event ended, they had a kind of a, um, a meeting right after it. And in that meeting was, what are we going, you know, the question was, what are we going to do next time to make it better? And so there's always that one up thing. Um, look at church budgeting and how much is being spent on just the stage decoration alone or restructuring the service um, auditorium for a particular experience for a sermon. Think about how, how people today require music to kick in about 20 minutes before the sermon is done because I kid you not, pastors have, have lamented to me because they don't know how to land the plane and the music helps them land the plane and it helps the word sink in. And so you can actually literally listen to a program and listen in about 20 minutes in, cue music. It starts in 15 minutes later, um, sermon is done, right? And so you have like these, these kind of patterns. And so a few years back, I wrote an article uh, because I was challenged about actually look, going into a, a, the modern church and observing the altar calls, right? Observing church structure, church, church organization. And I came back and I, and I wrote a piece called um, When the Bible No Longer Works. And the idea behind that was when the Bible is no longer sufficient to give you the answers for how church should look, that's how church looks today. And so I think that what happens is the, what we see is not necessarily the issue. What we see is letting us know that there is a deep wanting within the church and we're trying to satisfy that wanting, but we're satisfying it in all the wrong ways. We're creating a culture that, I don't know, it's, it may, it's, it's like a consumerism. And, and, and as you know, Anything that you consume, you begin to treat as wasteful and you're left hungry again. And so I think that's what happens with our churches today is that we're, we're, we're giving people a consumerism mindset that they come in and just take in, take, 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 and take. And then they treat everything that God has graciously given them in and through the church work as a, as a you know, usable, disposable resource. And then they're left hungry, so they come back always asking for more. And then we have to try to figure out how to do it. And church work has become that. And then um, kind of going back to how we even started this whole conversation, it doesn't really give people an outlet to be able to use their own gifts in their homes or even within the church because they come in already sort of pre-programmed, if you will, to desire to be fed but not to give. And part of the whole process of churching, if you want to call it that, is like from a biblical perspective, is what can I give to the church? How can I encourage the believers here? How can I edify them? What can I confess to them? I mean, there are all kinds of different things that we just don't do in our, I mean, some churches do, but, and I'm sure yours does, but that some churches just don't think about or don't do because it doesn't fit in the program for that particular day or whatever, or we're going to run out of time, or whatever it might be. So we end up kind of judging our success more so on the amount of people we had come to an altar, or that we, you know, how many numbers we had that given Sunday or whatever, more than how many people are pouring into each other within the local church. I mean, it really breaks my heart, because if you talk to anybody, they, they want to be able to do life together, right? That catchphrase, right? <clears throat> they want to be able to do life. And my question is, has anyone, for the most part, stuck around long enough for life to even happen? Um, I, I praise 
to generations of churches that, that, that can have three or four generations of people where you're going to church with your grandparents or parents or so on, whatever, kids and grandkids, and you're able to be there. Or you've been in a church for 15, 20 years, and you are, you know, and you get to pray with those who are elderly and those who are sick and those who have passed. And, you know, family takes time. Life takes time. Part of the, the postmodern characteristic is that we live transient lives, right? Our, our jobs are on the move. Our homes are always changing. And we bring that into the church. We go to a church for a couple of years. Um, and, and the expectation is after a few years, you may end up going to another church. You know, the church will pop up. It has other things that you may like and you may shift back and forth. Um, and so we bring in a transient idea, even in our church attendance. Um, and then we bring that into the way we think about our giving. Is it worth my investment is the language. I want to see the financial reports to see where the money is going because I want to make sure it's worth my time. Um, and so, because if not, I can go somewhere else that, that has it, right? We, we, don't, we don't stick it out. You know, one of the things that really humbled me early on in ministry was that I, I always prayed that I would become a very humble pastor, a humble church leader. And within the first two years of ministry, I did six to eight different funerals where I had to sit and, and you know, and speak eulogies and comfort families. Um, and these are people, you know, I, I pastored this church now for 13 plus years, but it's the same group of people that were actually there when I first became a believer. So I've known them for 18 years. Their kids were kids that were in children's ministry, in our youth ministry, going off into college and then coming back and now they're part of the church as well. And so if you really think about it, the reason why I can entrust my entire family into the, the hands of the leadership, the hands of the people, because I've known them for 18 years. They've been with us through the ups and downs of church and life. I've been with them through the ups and downs of life. You know, the love of God and the, and the stability and the strength of the gospel has been tried and tested and found to be true amongst us. But if I, but if I pulled the cord five years in and went to another church and every couple of years just shifting places, how, how am I ever going to do life with anybody? And then all of a sudden people sit back and they lament. How come I can't do life with anybody? Well, you didn't stick around long enough. Um, and so I think that's a part of the postmodern idea, though, right? Because if I'm not made happy enough, if I'm not met a certain way, um, it's, it's, it's like when you go shopping for clothes and you try it on. If it doesn't fit the persona, the image, or the feel, you just take it off and try on something else. And a lot of times we, we come in with this mindset of what church looks like now, like that, right? You, you try it on for size. You know, you go around, you church hop, you church shop for a while, you try it on, I'll give it a month. You know, and you try it on. If it doesn't, it's not the right fit. You know, the tag's a little bit itchy. I'm going to go try to find something else. Um, and so what happens is the idea of church, the idea of Christ, the idea of the gospel, is kind of like try it on for size, and you'll find out that this is a little bit better than the other garments you've tried. And, uh, and we'll go from there, okay? And then church work suddenly becomes this place where we're trying to say, you know, how can we make this garment a little bit more comfortable for them? And so I think that's, that's how you can kind of recognize the, the zeitgeist of, of, of church ministry and of Christendom um, as of today, as a postmodern, post-Christian culture. Do you have any closing thoughts that you'd like to share with the listeners uh, as we close out this podcast? I think the, the question at the end of the day people would be asking is, you're proposing that we go to a clear, simple modeling of the Bible. Does that even work? And, and, and I hate asking that kind of question because it's such utilitarian language. Like, does it work? It's almost as if, you know, we're looking at Christ as if he's only as good as he is useful. But for the sake of the topic, I will use that language to say it absolutely does work. I, I've, you know, the word of God never returns void. They've been doing it this way for, you know, biblical history. Um, people around the world do it this way. Um, and the church is thriving following after the biblical patterns and the biblical simplicity. I think that even in the midst of the postmodern that is bent on just satisfying self and finding things to do it, the underlying truth of humanity is still the same. They're wrestling with the transcendent and the, 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 the eminent, and they still want something transcendent. They're wrestling between disenchantment and enchantment, and they still want to be enchanted. So the need is still the same, the want is still the same. And another reason why I think that it works is because the word of God does not return void. It doesn't. So if we can trust God in this, I think the lesson for the church is that we need to learn how to believe God again. And so, you know, the word of God does not return void, which means that it will be sent out to accomplish that which he has purpose for it to accomplish. So if we can stick with that, then everything we say and do and even our patterns 
would have the force and the power of the resurrection of Christ behind it, right? Um, so I think it does work. Another reason why it possibly perceives itself to not work is because maybe we're shooting for the wrong goal. Maybe we're looking for the wrong thing. And so what happens then is that when we look for the wrong thing, when the gospel does come through, you're thinking to yourself, that's not really what I wanted. You know, and so and, and it goes back to just the word gospel itself, right? The word gospel, the good news, right? The, the, the news of good tidings, of, of joy and of happiness. And it was a language used by a town crier. So the king would, a new king would come into town and he would set up his kingdom, get the town crier, send him out to the city. And they would go out there and they would yell, good news, good news, good news. There's a new kingdom. There's a new king. There's a new way of things. Um, the town crier doesn't go into a city and say, you know, there's a new way of doing things. And what will make you happy? And, and what do you think? The king would do that for you. As long as you vote for Jesus, and he'll make all your father's dreams come true. You know, you put that on a t-shirt. Um, and that's not what he did. He just said, there's a new kingdom. There's a new king. There's a new way of doing things. Taste and see that it's good. And it's the same word that they would also use when the kingdom would go out to battle and they would win. And they would send one of the head soldiers back into the town and they would run back in and say, good news has been won. I mean, the gospel isn't for us to try it on for size and we have all these problems that God will be just the one to fix it. The gospel comes in and says, there's a new way of doing things. In that gospel, the old has passed, the new has come. We have passed from death into life. And by that, you are forgiven. Taste and see that goodness. And so I do believe that it absolutely works. And for us to succumb to the allurements and the enticements of a postmodern methodology or philosophy is detrimental to the very things that the people are actually trying to find. And what I mean by that is, if you, if you go back to this command for what it means to be a disciple, to take up your cross and follow after me, as, as Jesus said, um, anyone who tries to save their life will lose it. Anyone who loses their life for my sake in the gospel will save it. And, and the word for life and the word for soul for some of the translations is the same word in the Greek, right? It's, it's the word uh, suke. And the word suke is actually the same equivalent for the Hebrew nefesh. So trace that word all the way back to the Hebrew, you'll find out that the nefesh was this creature, which means alive, but it means the breathing creature or the living creature, which means that it's the life that one has while they are breathing or in existence. So it's beyond existence. It is livelihood. It is significance and meaning. So bring that forward from the Hebrew into the Greek, you have the suke. So that means that anyone who tries to save their suke, they will lose the very thing they're looking for, which is suke. But if you're able to lose it, die of it, let it go, lose your significance and meaning into the name of Christ and into the gospel, then you'll find the things that you've been looking for, which is suke. And so I think the answer to a postmodern world is discipleship in Christ, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where life and the abundance of life is found. For us to go to any other model is setting up idols before them, and those idols will crumble because those idols cannot hold life. Only the Father, who is a fountain of life, can sustain that life. And the Father has sent his Son, Jesus Christ, died on the cross for us, that we can be forgiven. And in faith, by his grace and his resurrection, we are, we are saved. And from there, we have life and abundance of life. So the church model falls after a strict biblical pattern of simplicity, clarity, and, and, and not following after the truth, and not succumbing to letting people just try on Christianity for size, I absolutely believe that it will work. And I think those who believe it and are his children can and ought to testify of this. And when you are able to testify of it and stand on that ground, it really doesn't matter what others may say who have never tasted it. It really doesn't. You know, going through this world, it's confusing sometimes. You know, it reminds me of like Frodo and Sam when they, when they ended up in the, the, the elvish, the elven country. And, you know, they ask, you know, I don't know if the people made this land, but the land made the people. And sometimes we have become experts of the world and know nothing about our Savior. And Bible colleges and seminaries and churches alike, we are guilty of telling people that you have to go and understand the world through all these books, through all these studies, and then you'll be able to reach them. But at the end of the day, we spend all of our time becoming experts of the world and knowing very little about who God is and what he has said. And scripture warns us that the study of many books is wearisome to the soul. And so, you know, at the end of the day, if I have 
limited time and resources, pour into scripture and just hold it ever before you. Um, and don't waver on the patterns that you see. Because I truly believe that by God's mercies, he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things that pertain to life and godliness. So if you want to know how to reach a postmodern culture, think biblically. You don't have to try to get to understand the world. I mean, we're as secular as anybody can be. Just, just be a little more you know, reflective and introspective and you'll understand the world. We're a part of it. But we have to renew our minds and be transformed and test and see that the will of God is perfect and good. Amen. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much, Linus, for coming on the program today. And for the listeners who would be interested in getting to know more about you, more about your church, the ministry, um, discipleship, anything along those lines, how, how can they do that? As Josh, as you mentioned, uh, I pastor a church, Westside Fellowship Church. Uh, we do have a website um, up, um, and you can go there and find a little, you know, past audios and more information about the church. Um, and with that, there's the, the resource or teaching ministry, you know, of the way ministries. Um, and that's dedicated to be this growing archive of resources for discipleship, uh, for spiritual formation, spiritual intimacy, uh, God's glory. And when you go there, you'll find, you know, video archives, audio. It's, 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 it's an ongoing kind of a growing archive right now. So you'll have resources and other publications and books. You'll have references to maybe other sites that have become very helpful for us. And, and um, it's just a way to be able to pour back into a people who have their churches and who have ministries or maybe families or maybe just interested. So there's everything that can go along your journey of discipleship, evangelism, or outreach. Um, and of the same, you know, of the way ministries, we also have a, a YouTube channel that you can go there and, um, and you can check out the YouTube channel and, you know, you can subscribe to that. You can uh, sign up for the newsletter and get more information that way as well. Awesome. Well, hey, thank you so much, Linus, and I look forward to talking to you again in the future. I'd love to have you back to talk uh, a little bit about soteriology, but we can save that for another time. <laughs> thank you so much, Linus, and I hope you have a great day. Thank you for having me.